Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord, and uh, I'm thrilled to have you taking in our, uh, our little show today. Uh, Group Thinkers is the podcast from RKD Group, and on each and every episode, we discuss what's happening in the nonprofit marketing space with someone who is um, innovating, doing something new, doing something different, uh, taking a, an alternate approach, or someone that's just wrestling with a current topic or uh, current issue. And uh, and on today's episode, super excited to welcome John Perel from the Smithsonian Institution. Now, John is someone who uh, I've gotten to know over the last couple of years uh, and gotten to know him mostly through industry associations like the Nonprofit Alliance, TNPA, uh, and around some of the, I don't know, maybe more, more consistent or standard nonprofit marketer conferences, uh, like the, you know, the work of the ANA and DMAW, et cetera, et cetera. So, so John is a, a, a very well-known strategist in the space. Uh, John's scope, uh, of his responsibility, he's going to get into it in more detail, but just the top show, let me tell you, He's responsible for membership and strategy across the entirety of the Smithsonian Institution. So all the properties, all the vehicles, all the ways in which someone may connect and ultimately give to the Smithsonian. Fascinating gig and even more fascinating guy. So on this episode, Ronnie and I talk with John about uh, just the uh, the idea of getting younger in <laughs> donors. And, and what it looks like to reckon with your donors aging, how to, um, how to navigate and build internal agreement on developing strategies and, and then putting them in place. And so you'll hear John talk about where uh, the Smithsonian is on that journey, some of their bold vision that they have going forward, which is good stuff and and more. So it's a great episode. Hey, before we get into it, you know, all of this in season six, every episode that we're doing, it's all a part of our, our series that's hovering around or touching in some way our, our Gen X study, uh, which you can find at rkdgroup.com slash Gen X. You can download a copy of the full study there, any of the worksheets, et cetera. And, uh, and check out any of the other content uh, that RKD Group has on our site and our social and any of the past episodes of Group Thinkers. So uh, so that's it, that's the plugs at the top. And again, very excited to have John Perel of Smithsonian on this episode of Group Thinkers. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. Uh, on today's show, Ronnie and I are thrilled to welcome uh, John Perel, the Director of Strategy and Member Experience for the Smithsonian Institution. John, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing very well. Doing good. Have a have a little touch of the fall entering into Dallas as we're recording today, which is a break from our mid and upper 90s. So it feels great outside. We're we're thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, you by the way, you are our first guest from an institution. So, cool. you know, there's that. No, we, we you know, we, we've had uh, a handful. We've had uh, lots of uh, folks on the show over the six seasons 
that that we've done this and and in each and every conversation, really what we try to drive to is understanding how nonprofit marketers, whether or not you're on the nonprofit side or on some sort of partner side or vendor side or whatever, how they might be thinking about or doing things differently. And uh, I, I'm very excited for our conversation. One, because I know some of the answers, but then second, because uh, I, I'm fascinated with the scope of your gig and the the way in which you enable the mission of the Smithsonian uh, across the board. And so I, I'm just really excited to, to chat today and just couldn't be more appreciative of you making the time. Great. Excited to be here. Well, well, thanks. So, so really, just at the outset, the the place that we like to start is is you, and uh, and really understand your journey and how you ended up at the Smithsonian. So, tell us a little bit about your background and and that that path into the nonprofit space and and how you ended up in your current stop. Uh, I've been doing this uh, a little over twenty two years now, uh, kind of in the the nonprofit fundraising uh, world. Uh, I started in the industry because I moved down to Washington, D.C., and my previous career, there was no, uh, there was nothing for me in D.C., um, and I took my project management skills uh, and started doing uh, direct mail production management uh, at an agency. Uh, realized quickly that um, the thing I least like about um, our industry is producing direct mail. Uh, and I was much more interested in uh, the strategy and the segmentation and the messaging that the agency clients were talking about with, um, you know, with the with the nonprofits. And so uh, after about three years, I jumped over to the American Red Cross National Headquarters, uh, started out uh, with a, a mid-level chapter program. Uh, and, and worked my way over eight years through uh, a tsunami and Katrina, um, doing disaster fundraising and chapter fundraising to uh, running the kind of the entire uh, direct marketing uh, program for uh, national headquarters and, and what's now evolved into the, the, the national um, chapter program. And, and then uh, uh, was wooed back over to the agency side, worked at a, at a, at a small agency that specialized in political fundraising um, and arts and culture fundraising. And so I, I, I developed a passion for working with regional museums, um, large and small. And a position came up in 2013 at Smithsonian um, where they needed somebody who had uh, arts and culture membership experience paired with affiliate fundraising experience. So um, a, a weird hybrid experience uh, and skill set. And I had that and, and I started in 2013 and uh, it's it's been a great journey. Um, Smithsonian is really interesting because we have seven philanthropic membership programs and we have two magazine memberships, uh, all in total engaging about 2 million people a year. And, and so it's it's um, figuring out, um, you know, how to work amongst all those programs uh, and understand the value that they bring together to the Smithsonian. Um, it's a great opportunity. Uh, it's it's a unique way in building value in members because they, they tend to, um, over time, either give more money like we want them to do or they give across many different membership programs. So uh, engagement with our, our institution and our, and our various um, 
museums and programs uh, is really important to the donor. You know, I think about the, you know, the size and scope of your universe and it's very broad, as you mentioned, the, you know, 2 million members that are uh, in some way touched or marketed to or influenced or have a relationship annually and all the different ways in which they can engage, right? Not just channels, but uh, Mm -hmm. uh, programs and and lines of affinity and it's a it it's a um it's an enterprise right i mean it it is it is the full scale enterprise that you're that you're helping manage just just curious before we even get in the conversation like just how do you manage all of those entities to see a a donor in a singular format well uh truth be told we don't at this point um you know, it's uh, where we're really kind of set up in a way that um, we all coexist without um, being able to share that data or collect that data. So um, we've made a lot of uh, inroads with regards to philanthropy and data management. Um, you know, in 20, 2012 to 2015, we brought, you know, most of the data for membership and for donors and philanthropy together into one database. Uh, but still to this day, uh, we don't um, capture visitor data. We aren't uh, consistently um, in a standardized way collecting uh, data of people going to different programs uh, and, and stuff like that. So um, so it's an opportunity and, and leadership is keenly aware that that's, that's a huge opportunity to really be able to understand how people are engaging with us um, across the board. Uh, and that includes also kind of from a retail perspective, you know, how they're buying things online, what are they buying in the stores, what, what, they're, what restaurants they're going to. Uh, it's, it's a lot of data out there. And I think the opportunity lies in, in bringing that together and really starting to get that 360 degree kind of view of our constituency of how they really truly engage with us. Uh, and I think it's, it's untapped opportunity that um, will build the case for the investment in that technology because, uh, you know, like, like everything, technology costs money and uh, it's rapidly changing uh, on an annual basis. Yeah, you're, uh, you, you're amongst uh, many peers that are, are wrestling with the same ideas, concepts. Um, so uh, as you, you know, as we, we transition our conversation, this particular season of Group Thinkers is, is really around the idea. It started around the idea of Gen X, and that's kind of morphed and ebbed and flowed out of the, the research that we helped pull together into wrestling with what it means to get younger donors. And I, I recall a, a conversation that we had ahead of a TNPA uh, webinar just about a year ago where you had some unique insights on younger donors and how the institution views donor demographics and uses donor demographics. Uh, Just, I wanna come back to data management, but I would love for you to speak to how you look at your donor base right now uh, and your member base and what you know about them from an age standpoint and then what that alludes to in terms of getting younger donors. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, um, fact be told is that 
our donors are aging. Even our newly acquired donors are aging. I just I just looked at the data for uh, FY21, and and they're older, and um, it's not surprising. We're we're thriving right now in the pandemic. Um, even though we were shut down, you know, for the most part of a year, uh, you know, our acquisition went through the roof uh, about six to eight months before the pandemic. Uh, we're bringing on uh, new new members and donors at a at a clip we haven't seen since the before the the last uh, Great Recession, uh, but um, they're 10 years older, 11 years older than they were back then, and and that's a worrisome trend. Uh, the one thing we know is that those donors we bring in through uh, digital marketing, which is um, a very small scale at our organization because we just uh, approved our privacy policy about a month before the pandemic hit. Um, you know, they're coming in, you know, a decade younger. They're not coming, they're not coming on board like at 55, 45 to 55, like they were, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, but they're coming on at, you know, 59, 60. I'll take that any day. Um, but it's really about scaling up digital marketing and really being able to kind of transition our program um, to that. And so we're, we're going through that process of, of, of going from a, a privacy policy that got approved, um, you know, and in, in really kind of thinking about how we voluntarily comply with CCPA from a, a cookie standpoint, from a notification standpoint, um, so that we can really scale it up and, and understand, you know, what the impact is uh, when you scale up digital acquisition. Um, you know the the direct mail is, is is doing well, but it's again it's it's you know 69, 70 years old. It takes our average member 13 years to get from a point of entry at seventy five dollars to twenty five hundred dollars, um, and our donors age out at seventy eight. So you know we're sort of you know approaching a a cliff, um, you know uh, you know figuratively speaking, and and that's that's frightening. And we've been approaching this for a long time, so I think. Leadership has finally, um, you know, understands the value and the potential of engaging um, a national audience um, beyond our membership to grow our membership. Um, it will help build our pipeline. It will help us uh, achieve a greater financial stability. Uh, but it's the digital marketing that we really need to get to. And so, you know, we've brought on um, a, a new director of digital transformation who's really looking at our organization and thinking about, you know, what is it going to take um, to, you know, become a digital organization? And what does that mean? Um, for Smithsonian, it's beyond digital marketing. It's, um, you know, we've really done a lot with uh, digital engagement from a, from a programming standpoint because we closed our museums down. We weren't able to travel anymore. Uh, we've got new audiences with that. Um, you know, digitization of our collections. Um, you know, one of our, our breakthroughs um, during the pandemic when we closed is we created uh, Smithsonian Anywhere, which was the first time that we basically brought all the Smithsonian together online um, and created a dashboard that made it easy to navigate. Because if you go to Smithsonian, uh, it's a cacophony of, you know, 30, plus websites and, and to find information, it's really hard, but how can we take that further? How can we really start to create channels? How can we really start to um, understand people's interests so that we can push content and, and online exhibitions and collections uh, to them to better engage them? So it's it's exciting. I mean, I think we're, we're trying to figure it out and, and at least leadership is, you know, really paying attention to it now. There's there's so many things that you that you mentioned there, and just to recap a, a couple of them, 
uh, there's in an effort to get younger, one, getting younger doesn't mean finding millennials or finding Gen Xers, right? That, I think that's an important truth for people to talk about. And yes, we believe strongly in the emergence of Gen X, but getting younger means getting younger, right? And so that's 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 a part of it. Second is a key strategy for getting younger is your digital enablement. And that starts with the work of your privacy policy. Right. Right. Like that I, I, I just don't think that that's too many too many times we uh we think, oh well, getting younger and starting in digital means we're gonna rush into social media. And you forget about the foundational aspects of making sure that, that your house is in order. And by the way, I, I know John, because we've had these conversations for a number of years. Getting to the place of getting your privacy policy shored up was no small feat. Right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we were an organization that had multiple privacy policies uh, for the commercial division, for the nonprofit division. Um, you know, bringing that together, uh, you know, really starting to think about, you know, how do we collectively um, think about a privacy policy, especially when you've got parts of the organization that are marketing or want to market into the EU and, and parts that don't, um, and in and, and creating a policy that's uh, an even playing field for, for everybody um, in order to be able to then um, allow us to really kind of move the, the digital aspects of our, of our organization forward. So it's, you know, it took, it took, it took a long time. Um, and, and we're, you know, now we're revising it because of CCPA and for Colorado. And so um, that's where voluntary compliance came in. You know, we're technically as nonprofits, not, you know, we don't have to comply, um, but voluntary compliance makes it a lot easier for us to get contracts with the big data firms because they have a lot of responsibility. Um, and, and that's actually part of it is, is, you know, negotiating, you know, contracts with all these big data firms, um, getting on the same page with our commercial division. So it's, it is a lot of, you know, um, groundwork to get it in place. Um, and, and then once we can get there, then it's really starting to think about, well, what makes sense and how do we start doing this? Um, you know, we've dabbled for years, but we've never actually kind of gotten to a point where we, we actually start testing and start understanding the impact of that scalability. Direct mail, we've been doing it for you know 50 years. We understand what scale is. We understand the impact of the the deeper you go, the lower the response is. Um, online, it's you know I think it's exciting. You know I mean it's it's the it's the unknown um, and it's a little bit of the wild west. Um, and and in some ways, I feel like we're benefiting from not having been able to taste the elixir of the the free you know, the free to do what you want to do with digital marketing um, because we were so cautious. Now we can go in um, and, and, and be responsible, um, you know, and that's our thing is we have a fiduciary responsibility to our constituents to protect their data. And as you know, um, in the past, you know, year and a half, there has been a large data incident um, that affected a lot of donors across the nonprofit sector. And so I think that's also further complicated it because we have to really think about, um, you know, how how our partners are protecting our our constituent data. So, John, I mean, you you talk about you know data management and digital tools and getting kind of that side of the house in order. Um, you know, the other side, I, I, you know, I'm curious about is is kind of the creative and messaging and, the, mm -hmm. and how do you reach and connect with donors. You know, in our, our research um, in our Gen X study, we asked donors you know a whole lot of questions, and one of the questions was kind of about their you know the top reason why do you give to nonprofits. 
And we found that, you know, belief in the cause is, is clearly their number one reason that goes across all generations, no questions there. Um, but then one of the areas we saw a really interesting gap was um, that 82% of millennials and 74% of younger Gen Xers said they wanted to increase an organization's reach or influence and compared that to like the older Gen X were 44% and then 23% of the baby boomers said that. Then kind of on the flip side of that, 75% of baby boomers and 65% of older Gen Xers said they wanted to make a financial impact compared to 39% of younger Gen Xers and only 2% of millennials. So like you have this younger group that's interested in, you know, this, they grew up with social media and they have, they are, they're interested in influence and reach and clout and that sort of stuff. And then you have this older group that's, that wants to make a financial difference in funding, you know, as, as you start thinking about how, you know, you're going to reach these donors, does that come into play? Like, does the Smithsonian need to move from being, you know, less of an institution and into being more of a cultural movement, for example? I absolutely think so. So it's uh, it's interesting. That's been uh, within within my department, the Friends of the Smithsonian. That's been a major debate since the day I started there because we've got the we've got the group who believes that um, you know we are the Smithsonian and you know we should you know be the biggest and the best and you know have the best events and stuff like that. And and that's our older donors. Those are those people who are over you know I say sixty five. Um, and, and they, they want a really nice reception and, you know, they want to be able to, you know, see other people. Um, and then there's the, the other side is people get younger. It's, um, you know, they don't want thankfulness and gratitude. They want access, um, to curators and to researchers, but then it, it, it gets even deeper than that because it's, it's about, um, what we do and who we are. And, you know, we've been for, from my point of view, um, for, you know, 20 years, very conservative in how we present ourselves. Um, and, you know, we're the Smithsonian, we're like this, you know, Ministry of Culture, and we've got these great museums, and we're doing this great work, but we don't really talk about the environmental work that we do. Um, you know, we're one of the largest environmental organizations, we partner with government agencies and states and other nonprofits. Um, and then, you know, with our new secretary, who has grown up with the Smithsonian, he um, is really kind of recruiting a leadership team that can really leverage what's going on in the world right now. So it's it's climate change. It's social justice. Um, you know, we have all these different environmental research programs and a natural history museum. We have all these cultural museums. Uh, we have African-American history and culture. We have the American Indian we're going to be building the Latino Museum, the the um, the Women's History Museum. We have an Asian, um, you know, Pacific um, cultural program. So so we are really positioned to kind of transition into what I call a movement or what you call a movement. And and that's that's great. You know, being part of a national discourse on, you know, race in America and and, and, and how do we together move forward with this and, and as a country and strengthen our country, you know, um, how do we, you know, as a, a cultural organization really have an impact on climate change and, you know, informing people, engaging people, having a dialogue about that. And so uh, it's exciting. You know, the new leadership team um, really is starting to think of us as a movement um, as much as being this kind of venerable institution. So I think um, they get that we have to 
speak almost two different languages for the different you know parts of our of our collective uh, philanthropic group and and to be able to be relevant uh, with a digitally savvy socially conscious conscious and environmentally aware um, you know few you know generations that are coming up we, we need to be you know really kind of um, engaging them in a way that's meaningful um, and so it's 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 an exciting time and, and leadership again I keep saying about leadership is really aware, but they're aware, they're engaged, uh, and they are really kind of um, in, in engaging people across the organization to really think this through, to come up with roadmaps of how do we do this? What's it going to take? How do you all work together? Because that's the other part is a big bureaucratic organization. We aren't the best at working together in a collaborative way. We say we are, but as you know, any kind of large institution, you have your fiefdoms and you have your control and your ownership. Uh, but but how do you kind of, you know, take that away and, and really think if we work together as a group, um, we can really elevate um, our mission um, in a way that we've never done before. And and we can attract a more diverse, engaged audience and um, staff, you know, at the same time and and, and really kind of be a, an example for the rest of the, the cultural and environmental sector. There's a, there's a lot of what you shared there, John, that to me is about um, evolving the relevance of the organization. The organization is relevant and it continues to stay relevant, but it's through really smart strategic moves that it continues to increase, as Ronnie said, increase its reach or increase its relevance. So, you know, the the museums uh, and attractions and programs that you just mentioned, in addition to the media, uh, channels i mean heck as an institution you're also a media entity with right. all sorts of pro programs and um and when we were when we were chatting uh pre-recording we even talked about that uh you know there is there's somewhat of the vision current reality it's it's not unlike disney as a, a corporate model that there's the parks and the media and you know the the retail and all of that wrapped in together into one large entity and i think that that's so powerful uh in terms of your strategic footprint and as you said as people have become more digitally savvy and all ages have become more digitally savvy especially in the last two years yep that you have to find ways to make yourself even more relevant to connect with those folks through the means in which they're connecting with others. Uh, so so my, my question for you is, I don't know, a little side stream is, we know in the nonprofit market landscape, folks don't all have this figured out, right? It's, that's, not, that's not the point of the conversation is for someone to, to boast in, well, yeah, we've been testing this for years and this is what, you know, it's, we're all on a different part of the journey to get there and to understand this. And so you've hinted at this leadership aspect and leadership uh, affirming the, the need to make these moves uh, or to put in place something. I would love for you to share what that something looks like, like whether or not someone's in a large bureaucratic organization or in, you know, a community-based organization that's six people. What does it look like right now for you and your teams to unpack the vision, 
and build the strategy to move this sort of effort forward? So I think I think the way it's working in our organization is, um, you know, leadership sees that there are these key challenges, um, you know, whether it's something like, you know, what is what does Smithsonian look like post pandemic? Um, you know, what's the future of membership? Uh, what, you know, what is, you know, digital engagement? Uh, and so I think, you know, our leadership team is, you know, they're going across the organization and they're kind of posing these questions to groups of people and we create these work groups. Uh, we, you know, kind of start to identify what the opportunities are. Um, and, the, and the interesting thing is it's not about tactical. We know all the tactical things we need to do. Um, it's really about blue sky thinking. So start with the blue sky. Think about if you had every resource in the world, what do you want to do? Um, and then, you know, working with this group to kind of figure out what makes sense in this blue sky. Um, you know, so, you know, my blue sky idea is what if we brought all member services and customer service together into one place um, and you create a great back end experience, you know, for members and visitors and whatnot. Um, that's huge. I mean, that that just blows your mind. But it's something that if we were able to you know, implement that, it would have huge impact for the organization. And so then the question is, you know, in the long term, how do we get to that point? What is needed to get to that point? How do you create um, like a, a, a Hilton Honors type, um, you know, experience, you know, from a, a loyalty perspective? Um, you know, what does that look like? What is it going to cost? What's it going to take systems wise? And so when you start to look at a lot of this stuff, what you start to understand is that in every challenge, there's commonalities that are aligned. And again, one of it's technology, two of it is data governance, you know? And so, you know, we're building the case for the in, in investment in that. The other part of it is um, culture change. We have to change our culture internally to be able to move these things forward. Because if you've ever been in any other nonprofit profit before, one of the biggest challenges is whether you're engaging a consultant or you're doing an internal project you create you know back in the in the 2000s and the 90s you created these binders of recommendations and you could go to you know multiple consultants over the years and they'd make the same recommendations and it's great but they filled the bookcase and you never implemented it and so the difference now is think big um then size it to what's you know what we can bite off in a, in in a short term and in a long term and then create the roadmap and and so all this is going to go up to our, our board of regents they're going to approve it leadership's going to approve it then they're going to start to you know figure out how do we fund these things what are the critical things we need to fund to move it forward so so again you know if you're a small scale organization what are your what are your core opportunities you know how does it align to your mission um, how is it going to, you know, either move your mission along or help you raise more money? You know, you know, if you're a, you know, a food bank, how is it going to help you serve more in the community? So I think it's it's something that you know any organization can tackle. Um, I think that you just you have to have a framework around it. Uh, the biggest challenge, and this is the worry that any person has in in, in whether it's a corporation or a nonprofit, is you make the recommendations, you get them to leadership, and and it's the challenge is getting the rubber to hit the road and to make it move forward. So um, I've been around the block many a times, and I've seen a lot of these things happen. And then this is the first time that I actually feel that the leadership team is really truly committed to 
moving some of this forward. Um, and, and the realism in it is that we're not going to be able to do everything that we want to do. But if we can just do two or three of these things and do it well, um, again, that then can hopefully help us raise more money, get more funding to do things. Uh, it can create a track record where there's success and it's paired with trust because, you know, within any organization, you have this history on everybody's shoulders that weighs them down. And that's why culture doesn't change is because you just don't trust other people or you don't trust leadership. And so I think, um, again, you know, if you can get a plan in place that um, you can get some level of commitment to move it forward, I think then that becomes, you know, exciting for the organization and, and transformative because that's what it's about. It's about transformation of an organization. It's about transformation of a mission. Uh, and, and I think the pandemic has for a lot of organizations, you know, made them step back and kind of rethink their business models and, and, and you know, face some really hard realities. You know, because we shut down, we are hemorrhaging, you know, millions of dollars because our, you know, when we were shut down, stores and restaurants were, were closed. And so, you know, how do we offset that? You know, it's, it's by engaging people in our mission and in our, you know, hopefully movement um, to change the world. There's uh, the I do believe I agree with you that the reality is that over the course of the last year and a half that many nonprofit leaders have stepped back and been able to reflect and set a course. I don't know if it is day job or night job, but set a course forward towards transformation. Right. And so that that is definitely one thing that the last 18, 19 months have blessed us with is the opportunity to be reflective and to chart the, the next course forward. The other thing that it's done, and this is where it's it's uh, it's definitely stretched us. You have one foot in the vision side mm -hmm. and then you have this other foot in the good gosh, what do we have to deal with now side, like the immediacy and urgency that we've experienced of responding to. And just as we land our, our conversation today, uh, I, I'm curious about um, what is keeping you up at night right now uh, with respect to, you know, um, your year end fundraising as you think about the next six to 12 months. There's part of it that is the enablement of that vision, which let's call that night job, but then there's also day job. And so just curious, John, your perspective, your outlook, what you're thinking about the uh, the current environment and what fundraising is gonna look like in the next, uh, in the next two quarters. Well, our fiscal year ends in seven days. So um, I am I am up all night long uh, thinking about money right now. Uh, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest concerns I have are kind of the direct mail side of things. Uh, you know, the cost of paper, the cost of transportation, the cost of, you know, employees now because of this changing, you know, workforce and 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 the fact that, you know, mail shops are competing with Walmart to, to hire people, um, postage going up. You know, those are the things that are really kind of, you know, worrying me you know the usps uh, their deliverability you know not deliverability but you know the first class mail coming back is 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 always at this trickle now and we're we're seeing these these you know tail ends of campaigns that are going up two months further 
So it's, you know, the direct mail side of things really has me um, up at night. Uh, the cost of the program has me up at night. You know, we've had these two great years where, you know, we're up significantly in revenue, you know, three to five percent each year. And the expenses are just, you know, sucking the, the net out of the program. And so, you know, the hope of the digital shift um, is exciting because hopefully we can tap into new audiences. We can, you know, increase our revenue um, in a way that outpaces the the cost of the program. Um, so those are those are the really big things. But you know, you know, across a lot of the sectors of the nonprofit industry, you know, acquisition has been really strong. You know, and it's counterintuitive. Who would have known? You know, in March 2020, when everything shut down, that you know by summer of 2020, the nonprofits would be just going through the roof. And it's sustained. So it's not like they're disaster donors. That's the other thing that I, I, it doesn't keep me up, but I contemplate constantly is who are these people and why suddenly do we have more new donors than we've had in 20 years? And and and, and that's the part I want to understand is, is, is who are they? Are they going to stick around? Are they going to build value? Uh, they're clearly not for us younger, uh, but they're coming to us because something that we're doing, you know, I, I used to think I was just a brilliant, you know, strategist, and it was just all about the the copy and the package and the testing and whatnot. But it's it's ultimately, you know, I think part of it is that the world seems scarier and less hopeful than any time in in our lifetimes. Um, we aren't a generation that went through a depression or a world war, you know, those things. But you know, climate change, social justice. You know, police reform, all these things, you know, the the polarization of our population, um, those things, you know, and, and I know that millennials in, you know, in the younger um, Gen Xers, those are things that that give them angst. And so I think connection to a, a nonprofit mission or a nonprofit movement gives you hope in the future. Um, and, and that ties back to sort of uh, a difference between most nonprofit donors and uh, what we have in the cultural space, and, and we call it with them the what's in it for me. Uh, in the cultural space, there's a lot of that. And it's not about making sure that the cultural institution is there for the world in the future. It's really about making sure that an institution you believe in is there for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. So so I think, you know, that legacy building, um, whether it's, you know, by adopting a cultural movement or by adopting a, a cultural institution, I still think that both of them, it's its about making sure that it's there for future generations that are related to you. And um, it gives you hope, you know? Um, and that's, I think, what we're all looking for right now is a little bit of hope um, in this world. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very well said. The uh, One of the things that we, we observed in our research was that the, the rise of the internet is an expansion of a global worldview. And the larger your your view of the world, the more complicated purpose becomes, and there are changing motivations, and and so we've all expanded our our worldview in the last two years. Whether mm -hmm. or not you wanted to or anticipated doing it in early March 2020, it's happened, and uh, and so I do think that for some, what we've seen is a call to local impact, and so you know the the increase in the number of donors across food banks and animal welfare causes that are local uh, is through the roof. And it's because people are trying to give where they can see it most. But 
it doesn't mean that other organizations aren't seeing the same increases in new donors. So there is this, <laughs> on one side, it's like, philanthropy is through the roof. And, and on the other side, it's like, yeah, but scariness is also through the roof. And so right. there is a, uh, there's an interesting connection that, that you hit on there. Well, um, John, uh, we, we so appreciate your time and your perspective. We love hearing about what the Smithsonian Institution is doing in terms of its organizational strategy and how that rolls into a transformed mission. And honestly, we can't wait to see what happens next i'm excited too so you know maybe we'll give you an update in a year yeah we'll we'll take you up on that john thanks so much for for joining the show today and uh, we look forward to catching up thank you all right there's the episode with john perrell of the smithsonian institution uh Really good guy, really smart guy, really experienced person, and uh, and and I appreciate him taking time to to share with us. Uh, one of the things we we kind of hinted at on the the episode itself, but I'm I'm increasingly reminded of is it's okay to not have it all figured out and have everything packaged up as a case study. <laughs> it's it's okay to be at a different spot on the journey, and it's also okay to have discussions in public forums whenever you don't have everything figured out and can't share out as a case study. And and honestly, I find many times the pressure in the nonprofit marketing space to share what we're doing in the form of fully baked, fully realized uh, impact. And when you're talking about getting younger donors, it's, it's a, it's a moving target (laughs) and, and it's moving for a number of reasons, right? There are new dynamics now that we didn't anticipate a year ago or or 18 months ago. And it's a moving uh, target because of some of the impact that John alluded to related to supply chain and, uh, and paper and, and trucking and, and all of those pieces. Like, it, you know, when you talk about being data driven and having a data strategy, which is what John built out in in his description of where the Smithsonian is. Well, the data strategy isn't set it and forget it, right? It's not set in stone. It's something that you have to constantly refresh and refer back to. And so I just appreciate his candor in sharing where they are on the journey and also giving us a model for other marketers that are tuning in to this episode to take in and understand. And so... Uh, yeah, if you want to connect with John, you can find him on LinkedIn, uh, John Perell, P-E-R-E-L-L, uh, with this, with the Smithsonian. And, uh, I can't wait to see, um, where they go from here, how they unpack and build the, the right go-to-market approaches for their grand vision. Really interesting episode. Thanks for, for checking it out. Uh, all of our past episodes, by the way, are available wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether or not that's on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or, or wherever you're tuning in. So be sure to check out some of our previous episodes, both season six and other seasons. And uh, and then, like I mentioned at the top, um, would love, love, love you to check out more of RKD's content. Uh, you can find that at rkdgroup.com up in the upper right-hand side or, or on, you know, as you're navigating through on a mobile device, just check out some of our other blogs and videos and, and all that good stuff. And 
uh, and keep sending us feedback. We, we always appreciate hearing from those who, who tune in. So with that, uh, thanks again for checking out this episode and uh, we'll see you next time. See you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests, but it's the marketing efforts behind Group Thinkers. Suzanne, Ronnie, and others for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers. 